We've been pondering the subject of suffering. There are numerous sources to our suffering, and I'm grateful that we are part of a church that recognizes that. Um, we have care groups available to our people, groups like Divorce Care, Grief Share, uh, that are trying to create space and time for people to uh, grieve their suffering and their hurting and their pain and to uh, find some, some camaraderie. Um, if you or someone you know is living through something like that, I encourage you to refer them to that. Specific dates and times are posted on our website. This video that you saw is filled with information very difficult for our minds to grasp. But as we're going to see shortly, this is exactly what God does uh, with Job. This, is, this information that we saw in the video is the kind of information God tries to convey to Job in his suffering. Now, suffering is an inevitable part of life, which is why we've been looking at this topic. No book of the Bible deals with suffering in a more honest way uh, and, a, and, and a more wise way than the book of Job. Um, and up to this point, um, we have looked at Job's situation, what he's lost. We have looked at his, uh, his words, his own words as he's reflected on, his friends as, he's, as they're speaking into it. For the first 37 chapters of the book of Job, God is completely silent. God has not said a word to Job. We can relate to that in our pain. Oftentimes we feel like God is quiet for a long stretch of time. We can relate to that. In chapter 38, God breaks his silence. He speaks. And what he has to say is astonishing. We're going to look at that this morning. We're going to look specifically at what God says what God doesn't say, and what it means for handling suffering well. What God says, what God doesn't say, and what it means for handling suffering well. First, what God says. I want to read just some snippets from chapter 38. Then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm. He said, who is this that obscures my plans with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man and I will question you and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? Who shut up the sea behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness? When I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place? When I said, this far you may come and no farther, here is where your proud waves halt. Have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been shown to you? Have you seen the gates of the deepest darkness? Have you comprehended the vast expanses of the earth? Tell me if you know all this. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow or seen the storehouses of the hail, which I reserve for times of trouble, for days of war and battle? What is the way to the place where the lightning is dispersed or the place where the east winds are scattered over the earth? Who cuts a channel for the torrents of rain and a path for the thunderstorm to water a land where no one lives, an uninhabited desert, to satisfy a desolate wasteland and make it sprout with grass? Job has experienced 
incomprehensible tragedy. He's lost his wealth. His servants have died. All ten of his children are dead. He's been mourning. He's been grieving. He's been crying out to God for answers to why he's in the situation he's in. And when God does show up and begin to speak, he doesn't say what we think or what Job thought he would say. You would think God could come alongside him, put, put his arm around his shoulder and say, there, there, Job, it's going to be okay. But he doesn't do that. Instead, God begins to interrogate Job. In chapters 38 through, seven, through 41, God asks Job 71 questions. 71. And for none of them does Job have an answer. Each question is designed to make a statement. Where were you when I created the universe? Do you know how many miles, feet, and inches the universe is? Have you ever told the sun when to rise and when to set? Have you ever created a thunderstorm or told the lightning where and when to strike? Have you arranged the constellations in the sky, told the stars where they should go and when? On and on and on it goes. What in the world is God doing here? Is this just rubbing salt into Job's wounds? Not at all. God is comforting Job in the best conceivable fashion. But he's doing it in a way we would least expect. He's comforting Job by showing Job what he's really like. Every question is designed to reveal some aspect to who God is. We just saw this amazing video, which I have been watching that video probably for five or six years now. I've seen it dozens of times. I still can't wrap my head around it. There was a, uh, there was a Bible teacher at a camp in Colorado who was speaking to some college students. And uh, at one point in her talk, she, she said this. She turned to them and said, if the distance between the earth and the sun, roughly 93 million miles, if the distance, by the way, if, if we could fly a commercial jet from the earth to the sun, it would take us a little over 19 years to get there. That's just the earth to the sun. If that distance was reduced to the thickness of a sheet of paper, then the distance between the earth and the nearest star would be a stack of paper 70 feet high. And the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. I once tried to calculate how long it would take to fly from one end of the Milky Way galaxy to the other on Delta. It was breaking my brain. The last number I'd come up with was about 100 billion years. And that's just the Milky Way galaxy. There are billions, maybe trillions of galaxies out there. So at this point, she turns to the college students who are gathered there and she says this. The Bible tells us God holds this universe together by the word of his power, by his pinky finger. And then she turned to them and said, now I want you to spend the next 30 minutes thinking about the implications of that for your life. 
Are you seeing the difference? Between us and this God? Sometimes I think I have that right, but then there are other times where I think, no, I don't even have this, I don't even have it close to right. Do I really see a gap that big between me and God? Let's do this thought experiment. Um, how many of us get irritated when someone doesn't return a phone call? Okay. What if I had and I gave to you Aaron Rodgers' personal cell phone number? Now, I don't want it, but maybe you, <laughs> maybe you would like it. So you have his personal cell phone number, you call him, you leave a voicemail, and he doesn't get back to you. Does that tick you off like it does when your friend didn't return your call or your coworker, your family member? Does that tick you off? Does that irritate you? I'm going to go out on a limb and say you're not going to get upset about that because you're thinking to yourself, well, that's Aaron Rodgers. That's different than my daughter not returning my call. I mean, who am I that Aaron would return my call? Not getting a response from someone who is completely other to us doesn't bother us too much. But not getting a response from an ordinary Joe irritates us. So when I cry out to God wanting a response from him and he doesn't give me any, do I get irritated with him? Do I get irritated with him for not getting back to me? If so... What does that say about how I really view him? And he'd probably respond to that by saying, okay, okay, so God is trying to convey to Job the massive gap that exists between him and, and God, a huge expanse. God is completely other. But how does that help? <laughs> how does that help in our suffering? How does that help in our pain? You know, I don't have a really good answer to that. It just does. What if God knows what our aching hearts need the most? What if in the middle of our pain, in the middle of our suffering, we actually give the benefit of doubt to God to say, you know what, he knows what my heart needs the most in this moment. Then what he's doing with Job is exactly what the doctor ordered. After God finishes asking Job all these questions, Job is not irritated. He's not ticked off. He's not despondent. Look at what he says. After God gets done with this barrage of questions, look at what Job says. Then Job answered the Lord, I am unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice, but I will say no more. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you. You shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. 
through God's barrage of 71 questions, Job's sensory perception of God had been enhanced to the point he's able to acknowledge there's something wonderful taking place. My ears had heard of you, but now, but now my eyes have seen you. Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me to know. Who uses the word wonderful to describe what he's been through? The effect that God's questions have on Job is to sharpen his sensory perception of who God is so that he's able to look back on all that's transpired and say, God is up to something wonderful in this. After God gets done with this, Job is in a place we want to be when we're suffering. He has, he has what we want. He is coming to an increasing place of rest, of peace. But it's coming in a way we would least expect. He's not getting this way because he's receiving answers to his why questions. That's not how he's getting to this place of rest. He's coming to this place of rest by gazing at the majesty, transcendence, and sovereignty of this God. Sir Ernest Rutherford is a well-known physicist. He was once called up by a friend Uh, also a professor, who was grading some examination papers. And uh, this professor had come across uh, an exam and and an answer to a question on the exam that was bewildering to him. Uh, So he had called up Rutherford to get Rutherford's opinion about it. The question that he he was wrestling with on how to grade was this. Show how it is possible to determine the height of a tall building with the aid of a barometer. The answer the student had given was this. Take the barometer to the top of the building, attach a long rope to it, lower it to the street, then bring it up again, measuring the length of the rope. The length of the rope is the height of the building. (laughs) The problem the instructor had was that it answered the question, but it wasn't what he wanted to hear. So he's talking to Rutherford, and Rutherford says, well, here's what you do. Bring the student in, have him meet with you in your office, ask him the question again, and, and see if he's, he's brilliant or he's just messing around with you. So he did. This professor brought the student in, and, and he asked him the question again. Show how it is possible to determine the height of a tall building with the aid of barometer. The student responded saying this, well, there are so many ways to answer how questions. For instance, you could take the barometer to the top of the building, Lean over the edge, drop the barometer, timing its fall with a stopwatch, using the formula at squared divided by 2 equals distance traveled. Or you could, on a sunny day, place the barometer on the pavement, measure its shadow, measure the shadow of the building, triangulate, and so forth. But I don't like all that complicated stuff. The best answer, the neatest solution is this, said the student. Take the barometer. Go to the basement of the tall building. Find the facilities manager. Say to him, look. I've been given this lovely barometer. It's yours if you tell me the height of the building. (laughs) 
This just goes to show you some, an, some questions can be answered in ways we don't expect. And that was happening with Job. In what God had to say to him in chapters 38 through 41, Job was getting answers to his questions in a way that he least expected. Second, what God doesn't say. God omits something significant in his speech to Job. Remember back to the first week of this. Remember God's conversation with Satan. Job was a man who had it all. He had uh, financial security. He had a great family, 10 kids. He was a man that God himself was very proud of. Remember what Satan says about Job. He says, does Job fear God for nothing? That is, Satan thinks Job praises God only because there are benefits attached to it. Satan thinks that if God removes those blessings, Job will no longer love and follow this God. Take away all he has and he'll, he'll bail on him. God's contention is that Job won't do that. That's the conversation that begins the book. God never tells Job about that conversation. He never mentions it. It's the reason he's suffering but he doesn't say a word about it. Job never learns why he really suffered. He never learns why. God can't tell him why. Why can't he tell him? Picture this. Job suffers, chapters 1 and 2, he begins to cry out to God. What if, what if God, instead of showing up at the very end of the book, shows up in chapter 3 and says to Job, okay, Job, you're asking me to tell you why you're suffering. Here's why. For thousands of years to come, people are going to hear about your story. Your story is going to be one of the most read stories in all of human history. People will be talking about you for years to come. Generations will hear you. People at this church called Alliance Bible Church in the year 2017 will be considering your story and finding great hope and encouragement from it. That's why you're suffering. And after hearing this, Job says, well, okay. This will be tough. Okay. What's just happened here? Job is now suffering because there's something in it for him. If knowing the reason for his suffering becomes the reason he stays faithful to God in the midst of it, Job is using God to get something from him. Same is true of us. If God needs to give you a reason for your suffering in order for you to remain faithful to him in the midst of it, then you're using him. Imagine God always giving us the, reason, the why behind our suffering. Matt, the real reason you're suffering is so that I can heal your marriage. Okay? Matt sticks it out. Stacy, the real reason you're suffering is so that I can transform your life. Okay? 
There's a payoff. John, the, re- the reason you're suffering is so that others will be inspired to follow me. John becomes content. Satan thinks the only reason that we love and worship God is because there's something in it for us. If we need a reason from God for our suffering in order for us to remain faithful to him, he's right. Satan doesn't believe for a moment there is anything intrinsic to God that will keep us devoted to him. Satan doesn't for a minute believe that there's anything intrinsic to God that will keep us devoted to him. Satan thinks the only reason we love and worship this God is because of the benefits and blessings attached to it. He does not for a minute believe that there's anything internal, intrinsic to God himself that would keep us loyal to him. And if we have to have a reason for our suffering, in order for us to remain faithful to God in our suffering, Satan is right. That's why God can't tell him why he's suffering. In withholding the answer to that question, God is using Job to undermine Satan's premise. God doesn't want us to have to have an answer to the why question in order us to find rest in the midst of our pain. Because that would mean we're looking for the perk, the blessing, the benefit. He wants us to find rest in the midst of our pain simply based on who he is. That's what God's doing with all these questions. You can trust this God. You can trust this God, not because he gives you good reasons for your suffering. You can trust this God because he's unfathomably big and he's overwhelmingly good. In her book, The Hiding Place, Corey Tenboom tells of an event that took place when she was 10 or 12 years old as she traveled with her father on a train from Amsterdam to Harlem. She had stumbled across a poem that had the words sex sin in them. In her book, she writes this, and so seated next to father in the train compartment, I suddenly asked, Father, what is sex sin? He turned to look at me as he always did when answering a question. But to my surprise, he said nothing. At last, he stood up, lifted his traveling case from the rack over our heads and set it on the floor. Will you carry it off the train, Corey? He asked. I stood up, tugged at it. It was crammed with watches and spare parts that he had purchased that morning. It's too heavy, I said. Yes, he said. And it would be a pretty poor father who would ask his little girl to carry such a load. It's the same, Corey, with knowledge. Some knowledge is too heavy for children. When you are older and stronger, you can bear it. For now, you must trust me to carry it for you. And I was satisfied, says Corey, more than satisfied, wonderfully at peace. There were answers to this and all my hard questions. For now, I was content to leave them in my father's keeping. 
Do you trust your Heavenly Father enough to leave the answers to your why questions in His care? Does your Heavenly Father possess enough intrinsic worth and glory for you to rest in who He is even if you don't get answers to why questions? The only way we'll find contentment when faced with hard suffering is to trust that our Heavenly Father is great and good. So finally, what does this all mean for handling suffering well? One of the things that I love about um, the Bible is that in nearly every passage, profundity and simplicity eventually link arms. What God says and what God doesn't say is incredibly profound. But what God says and what God doesn't say and what that tells us about how we handle suffering well is simple. So what does God want us to get out of his words to Job at the end of this book? Contained within God's words to Job are two simple keys to handling suffering well. The first is this, we need to live life in humility. One of the effects God is trying to create is to show us how much bigger he is than us. How much better he is than us. Combining pride with suffering is an explosive reaction. In order to prevent us from accumulating this pride as we journey through life, he fires off 71 questions that are designed in a way to make us feel so small we could sit on the edge of a dime and our legs would dangle. Because if we're struggling with pride and that season of suffering comes, we are going to contend with implosion or explosion. We may find ourselves angry, bitter, despondent, asking ourselves, I, how can this happen to me? How can this possibly happen to me? So how do we live life in humility? Well, we could take a close look at all 71 questions God is asking us at the end of the book of Job. But we could also look to the true and better Job. The ultimate innocent sufferer, Jesus Christ. Jesus was more innocent than Job. He's more innocent than any of us. He suffered to a degree much worse than Job did, or any of us have. And at no point in time did Jesus say, I don't deserve this. I'm Jesus. I'm holy. I'm perfect. He could have said all of that and been justified in doing so. But why didn't he? Why didn't his suffering lead to despondency? Because he's humble. Suffering crushes the proud. 
the humble are buoyed up within it. Jesus' humility purchased our salvation. It was Jesus' humility that kept him on the cross instead of in that moment clinging to something that was justifiably his. Jesus' humility saved you. Gaze upon that. Ponder that. And respond in humility to him. Second, we need to trust God. The other effect God's words to Job have in his life is to show him that he's so great he can be trusted. Combining distrust in God and suffering creates an equally explosive reaction. If you're struggling with distrust in God and you don't really believe God is good, when suffering comes, you're going to be anxious, riddled with worry, crippled by fear, because deep down you're going to be saying to yourself, I don't know if God's going to get this right. So how do we grow in our trust of this God? We could again look at the 71 questions he asks Job. But we can also look to the true and better Job. Jesus Christ, if there was ever a time when God didn't know what he was doing, it was in the capture and crucifixion of his son Jesus. Jesus was the hero. He's the champion. He's the one to bring restoration to the world. What must have the disciples been thinking as they gaze up at him, nailed to a cross with his blood puddling at the foot of it? They must have been thinking, this world is spinning out of control. Something has gone horribly wrong. But what did God bring out of human history's greatest tragedy? A risen and exalted Christ, death defeated, sin paid for, the wrath of God satisfied, salvation secured, if God is able to bring superlative good out of incomprehensible tragedy, doesn't that make him worthy of our trust through whatever hardship we're facing today? Handling suffering well really does boil down to these two simple things, humility and trust. book of Job ends like this. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. He was twice as wealthy as he was before. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters, and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. So the encouragement that comes out of this book, that comes to us, says to walk in humility and trust this God. 
because this God is the same God who takes unimaginable suffering and turns it into something extraordinarily good. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I want to create just a little bit of space here for us to process what we've heard these past three Sundays. If God was to withdraw his blessings from your life, the benefits that he's given you, would you still see him as someone who's worthy of your love and devotion? That's a difficult question to, to answer. But a really good one to ask. Do we see God as someone who has inherent majesty and value apart from any blessing or benefit we've received from him? Ask God to give you eyes to see that in him. Another theme we've seen in this book is the emotional reality of human existence. Have you given yourself permission to mourn and grieve in your suffering? Have you made it safe for others to mourn and grieve? handle suffering well, we need to walk in humility and trust in God. Ask God to help you with that. Father, when the next season of suffering darkens our doors, give us eyes to see who you really are. That we may hold on to you, trusting you through it all. God, I pray that in those moments you would comfort us with your greatness. And we ask this to your glory. Amen. In the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. And God's people said,